Welcome to the Fundraising Freedom Podcast with Mary Baloney. I'm your host, Mary Baloney, and this is the place where fundraisers come to be encouraged, empowered, and educated on how to raise more funds and have more freedom. Welcome to today's episode. I have been so excited about today's episode because I have a special guest with me. I feel like we've known each other for a while, but we actually just got introduced to each other. And my guest today is Ben Starling III. And Ben is actually a um, former director of philanthropy. He also has worked on huge projects like the Museum of the Bible and worked for the Scripps Research Institute. He's from Palm Beach, Florida, and he runs a business called Southern Philanthropy. And I am excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Honor to be here with you. Awesome. Well, hey, Ben, fill in the gaps. Did I miss anything on your story? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about you. My, my entire career has been spent in fundraising. When I was a sophomore in college, I, I had to work and I answered the ad on the college billboard to go and work, uh, go, go and run errands at, at an office. I went down there and kind of find out it was a fundraising PR office. And, and I really didn't know exactly what that meant, but I knew that I could run errands and the, the office was close to the school. So I went down there and from that point forward, I never, I never looked back. The uh, gentleman's name was Frank Wright. He was an old man and he, told me he was going to mold me into his image. And, and, and that, that he did. You know, I don't know if you were a Seinfeld fan, but if you ever watched Elaine when she went to work for Mr. Pitt, Mr. Wright was a lot like Mr. Pitt. I don't think I could do much right. But, uh, but anyway, I That's learned awesome. so much. He was, he was a master. That's so cool. Well, and I had a similar experience too, where just an incredible fundraising mentor. And then it was like, oh my gosh, I want to do this and I want to be more like them. So what, what is it about fundraising that you're really passionate about? What, what part of it did you really enjoy? I am always inquisitive about people. I love to know what they think, what they do, what they believe, why they believe it. I love to know where they've been, their life experiences. And I, I quickly discovered in, in fundraising that true fundraising meant that you, you, you get to know people and, and you get to know them generally over lunch and I love a good meal. And it was exciting to, to listen to these people and to understand their life experiences. I come from a small southern town. And so when I, I met with these people and they talked about their travels around the world and the important people they knew, they had experiences that I could only begin to imagine. And, and so I found that fascinating. And once I realized that, you know, this is a profession and I've always loved helping people and, and bringing people to the table. I always, you know, had the, what they call the gift of gab. <laughs> and, and that has uh, enabled me to, to always have a lot of friends and kind of a large network and, and I always got great joy in bringing people together for a common good or a good cause. And so I realized this is fundraising. This is, this is my profession. This is my calling in life. So oh, cool. I, it, was, it, was, it was a natural fit. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was younger, I, people would say, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know, what are you passionate about? I would always say people. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. I'm just passionate about people. And it sounds like you're the same way that it's like, just passionate about people and wanting to, to know 
yeah, more about them and how they tick and all those, those details. And I think that that's a really great quality for any fundraisers that you're just really, in, you know, you care, you just absolutely know more about them. So tell us, I know that today you do a lot of work specifically in the area of major gifts, but also working with really large scale organizations. So correct me if I'm wrong, you work specifically with billion dollar organizations. Million, multi-million dollar. <laughs> well, most of the organizations I work for are, are multi-million dollar organizations and had the experience of working for $2 billion nonprofits. And, you know, that was, that, that was some of the best fundraising ex- experiences I think that I've, I've ever had. That's so, okay. I just want people to like, you know, listen up that, you know, these, there, these organizations obviously exist and there are people like Ben in the world, who are so, you know, so good at connecting with people at this level. I think a lot of people freak out when you think about somebody who has a lot of money like that. Can you tell us just, you know, because you've worked so much with people in that, that space, is there anything that they should be scared about when it comes to those people? Absolutely not. I, I, can, I can tell you that I, I've worked with people all over the financial spectrum and by far the the easiest and most genuine people that you will ever work with are those at uh, at the highest levels financially. Mm-hmm. I have often given speeches of lessons from America's billionaires or the thirteen billionaires that I've worked with, and I can tell you that they're they're generally very humble people. They're not enjoying attention drawn to to their wealth, and they are committed to making a difference. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of times in in fundraising, you can you can find people that, you know, they want their picture in the paper, or they want their name on a building, or they want to be in the spotlight, and they want to use a charity in order to to get that spotlight. But when you get to the the, the top financial levels, you, you don't have to impress anyone. So you're not aiming to chair a gala, but what you are aiming to do is to change the world. And, and philanthropy at the highest levels is about changing the world. And that's, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy, you know, I, I'll, I'll never have a billion dollars to be able to change the world myself, but my contribution to changing the world is inviting others who do have that financial ability to uh, join in to an organization or to a mission and to participate financially. I love that. Well, and, you know, I share often that, we are the really that connector. And I was just recently listening to something that you were teaching and you shared that fundraisers are the fuel that makes the engine go. And I loved that. I was like, fundraisers are the fuel that makes the engine go. And that, you know, the organization does not go very fast and doesn't go very far without the fundraisers who are connecting with these individuals and these donors to, to make that connection. And so, uh, you know, so many people are just afraid. And so I guess I'd love to get just some advice from you on, you know, having conversations with somebody like that, you know, how, how have you initially been connected with somebody that has the ability to give a significant gift? Personal relationships. And, you know, the thing that I, that, that I often, often encounter with my clients is, you know, how do you do it? I don't know what to do. What if I say the wrong thing? And it, overarching uh, key to that, you have to listen and, and you have to know what to listen for. And, and, and once you've heard what you're listening for, it's weaving that into a conversation 
but it, and it, it's got to be a genuine conversation. You know, you, you need to be able to show your heart in order to see their heart. There was an interview that was done with, based, based on a, a book, I think it was a biography of President George Herbert Walker uh, Bush, 41. Mm-hmm. And there was a comment that was made that is particularly poignant. And it, it said, you, you never know a person until you know what breaks their heart. And that that is very helpful in fundraising. When you know what breaks someone's heart, you get to know the core of the the individual. And once you know that, and and if you are involved in an organization that can can remedy what is breaking their heart, that that information is invaluable. You will have you'll have a lifelong devoted friend in in that philanthropist. That's so good. Well, and that question about what breaks your heart and getting to the core of that, a mutual friend of ours often asks the the question, what breaks your heart? You know, what pisses you off and what difference are you making in the world? And as a charity, I think that that's what everyone needs to also hear too, is that if you know what breaks your heart and you know what breaks the heart of the person who's on the other side, you know that you're a good fit. Absolutely. And that is a beautiful thing once you find that out. So I love that. So, okay, you have a ton of experience, obviously, working in the fundraising space and working with a lot of different nonprofits. What are you seeing right now that's holding nonprofit leaders back? Overall, I I would say it is a uh, lack of fundraising training. For a lot of people, they've cut their teeth in, in special events. And they believe special event fundraising is the one and only way to go. And so that's where, that's where they focus their efforts. And what, what I'm seeing now is these event-driven organizations are having a very, very difficult time because yeah. COVID, COVID has shut those, those events down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the event-driven organizations are heavily supported by businesses that give corporate sponsorships and those sorts of things. A lot of that money is is dried up, and so you know another source of, of funds that that I teach on are major gifts and and key philanthropists in an area. Those individuals, staff, are are not versed in those, and so all of a sudden everybody is scrambling. And what I see happening is it's a mad dash, and unfortunately, you have people running in all different directions. And they do not have the, they've never been properly trained or educated on major gift fundraising and, and, you know, dealing with higher net worth individuals from a, a charitable or a philanthropic perspective. And so they, they make a lot of rookie mistakes. Mm-hmm. And as we know, in fundraising, sometimes you only, uh, you only get one shot. In a competitive fundraising market, where there are hundreds of people, hundreds of organizations after that same charitable dollar, a horrible first impression can, can be the, the kiss of death, that, that door slams shut. I that's, cannot, that's unfortunate. I cannot agree with you more. And that's why I love that you're on today's show because I was like, you know, when it comes to major gifts, I, I think that this is where majority of our funding should come from. And, you know, it's all about building relationships and having conversation with people and making it a, you know, making sure that it's a good fit. But could you explain uh, just for maybe the 
person who's just getting started in the fundraising space, what, what is a major gift when people hear that? What is, what is a major gift to an organization? Well, that, that's, that, that's an excellent question. And, and I get that every, every time I speak on major gifts. And the answer is it varies. Um, it depends on your organization. You know, I've worked in organizations before where $5,000 was a major gift. I have given advice to some startup nonprofits where if you gave them a thousand dollars, that was, uh, you know, they, they thought that they had hit the lottery with a thousand dollars. When I went to work for Scripps Research Institute, it was, it was interesting because the major gifts there level started at a hundred thousand. They wanted us focus on people who could give a hundred thousand dollars. And at Museum of the Bible, we, we set the target at, at 500,000 is where the major gifts begin. You know, you have some schools, Harvard and Yale, and some of those with billion-dollar endowments that, you know, major gifts may begin at a couple million dollars. So it it varies, but everybody needs to take a look at at their at their donor roles and determine what what is a major gift to your organization. Mm-hmm. And I, I've often classified that as something that makes a difference. You know, we, we all know $25, $25 is, a, is a nice gift, but that doesn't always pay the bills. So is it $2,500? Is it $25,000? What, what is your threshold? And, and whatever it is, whatever it is, once it's established, that, that becomes your benchmark in, in focusing in the major gift arena. Yeah, so good. Well, and for those of you who have been listening to the show for a long time, you know, I talk often about a $10,000 major gift, which is that was the level when I was working with the American Cancer Society and putting on my signature fundraiser. So just to give you guys a gauge on what that is, a lot of the organizations that I work with tend to sit in that $10,000 range. And they always say, gosh, most of our donations are coming in at 10,000. I was like, well, that's because you, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. in one way or another gave that impression that, hey, that's a major gift for our organization and we're going to treat you a little bit different if you give it that level. Absolutely. (laughs) So so that's great. Thank you for explaining that. And I listened to one of your webinars here is you shared that there is two different kinds of fundraisers and I loved, I loved it. And so I don't know if you can share real quick, what are those two different kinds? Sure. So I, I, I characterize those and, and, and I love sharing them. And and the first in, in major gift fundraising is the diligent student. And I describe the diligent student as someone who spends an inordinate amount of time researching the donor, looking up every aspect of their life. They may go through donor records. They may put together a, a, a profile on there with, with every last detail. They have, they have studied you know, seven steps to an ask and they are they have put everything together and they can quote stats figures everything that you can imagine but they can't make the ask it's almost like they are petrified and so their their contribution is that they've they they've done all this homework and but but essentially they can't pass the test but their homework the homework is is just in, incredible then the, someone that, that is typical of a lot of very entrepreneurial fundraisers is the gambler. And I guess I, I fit into more of that than I do the diligent student. And the gambler is someone that has generally an outgoing personality that believes that they can convince someone to give 
based on that personality, that their, their, their charisma, their insight, their likability will, will be enough to engage them with the philanthropist to, to get the donation. This person may do a five-minute Google search, just give me the highlights, give me the specifics, and off I go. The gambler drives the diligent student crazy because the gambler is out there taking chances and, and showing up at things, and the, the diligent student is generally always in the office, but always has a thick folder, and they are committed to facts and figures. Yeah. And, and so the, I, I've always believed the kind of the best fundraiser is a combination of both. But when I, when I look to hire for an actual fundraiser, I look for the gambler mm-hmm. because yeah. you have to make the ask. Yeah. And when you shared that, I was like, oh, that's so good. And when I reflect back on some of the partnerships that I've had with my volunteers, it was a good combination of the two. So my, you know, I, I probably would lean a little bit more onto the diligence student and my volunteer was the gambler. (laughs) It was was like, I was always like, what did she just promise? What did we just say we were going to do? Right. (laughs) But she was never afraid to ask. And she just jumped right in and was like, you need to be a part of this. You better be, you know, and, and that was such a great relationship that I had as a, as a fundraiser, because now all of a sudden I was like, okay, this is how you ask for money. You know, and she was a great mentor, you know, even though she was a volunteer, it was like, I mean, she really taught me a lot about fundraising. And so when you shared that, I was like, oh, that's, it really is beautiful. She pulled the gambler out of me (laughs) because I was like, you do, you have to have that bold, you know, tenacity to like, just jump in and say like, we want you in and you know, what does that look like? And so, but, but I think that there are a lot of people out there that get stuck in that diligent student mode where, you know, and it's a part of my process that I teach them. Step two of the process, run your research, but having some research is good. Having too much doesn't do you any. any Yeah. And, 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 and I think that's, that's the important, important thing that people have to remember at the end of the day, you're not being paid to do research. Uh, people who are paid to do research are called researchers. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you, you are being paid to raise money, and that requires you to, to act. It requires you to ask, and it requires you to close. Yeah. And, and so that, that's Im- it, so important that people remember that. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so if to give some advice, I know I've got a lot of listeners who are, you know, getting started or they're fairly new to this space. What advice would you give to them if they're just getting started and they're just they're because of all this COVID stuff, they're like, "Oh shoot, that fundraiser is not happening or we're moving it over to virtual and I've got to start building out this major gift portfolio and start really looking into this." What advice would you give to them to get started? You need infrastructure, you need knowledge. And because you need to do it properly. Major gift fundraising is very different than special, special event fundraising. And, and knowing the difference, knowing what to look for, knowing how you should structure things is vitally important. I, I'll give you an example. So in special event fundraising, your audience is, is basically anyone who can afford to buy a ticket to come. Mm-hmm. Those people who, who buy tickets, We'll, we'll refer to them as ticket buyers. You may have someone there that's, that's coming that, that is capable of giving at your major gift level. It, it is, it's vitally important, and I cannot stress this enough, that in major gift fundraising, 
you have to know the difference between a ticket buyer and someone that wants to change the world. And, and, and understanding that and putting that infrastructure in place will help you focus things, things in special event fundraising where kind of the saying less is more. That, 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 that's not a good thing to say in special event fundraising because everybody needs a big event. But in major gift fundraising, less is more because you're focused on quality. In special event fundraising, you're focused on quantity. I've always believed that it is much easier to get $1 million from one person than it is to get 10 $100,000 gifts. It's being focused. It's, it's knowing what to look for, knowing how to structure, and then following a strategic plan. That is really great advice. I think that that's where, when it comes to special events and why I think a lot of people are struggling right now is that, yeah, they, anybody come one, come all like this, there's, there's a space for you in, in the work that we do. And when it comes to major gifts, this is really an exclusive invitation, right? Absolutely. And, and one of the hardest things for, for special event fundraisers to do is to understand that, that not everybody plays in the major gift sandbox and that you have to leave some people behind. Doesn't mean that you don't engage them, but if, if your goal is to raise major gift support or you have a, a big number, say you need to raise $100,000 and you're not able to have your special events, you've got to do your homework. This is where you need to be the diligent student to determine out of the 300 people that have been faithful to your special event, who has the ability to donate that $100,000? And those are the people that you need to focus on. So, so setting up your time so that you are engaging people strategically is, is something that is very, very difficult for event-based fundraisers because you, you almost feel, and I've gone through this myself, so I speak from experience, you almost feel that you know, they bought tickets for the last five years. I feel like I need to do something. I need to honor them. I need to do something to make them feel special. And it, it does take a while to shift your mindset and realize that not everybody plays in the, uh, in the major gift sandbox. It's a different set of, of individuals. And, and the, this, this, is, this is where the smart fundraiser comes into play. You understand the difference. You're able to pluck the ticket buyers out of your events and, and know who needs to be invited into the major gift sandbox and then how to engage them. That's, yeah. that, that's the smart fundraiser. Well, and, and, and this, Mary, can I, can I add one more thing? Yeah, go for let, it. Let, let me tell you what happens to the, the, the unsmart fundraiser during this time. When you can't separate or you don't separate or you just mentally are not capable of, of doing it and you have a goal and your boss comes to you and said, you know, our goal was $100,000. We've had to shift and you've not been able to make the shift. We have missed the goal. I'm afraid we're going to have to change players. That, that is gut-wrenching and that's a knife to the heart. But that's, that's what happens. And more and more, that is what will happen in the coming months. The fundraisers that, that are unable of shifting their mindset and shifting their strategy will find themselves without a job. Yeah. And that is, yeah, gut-wrenching. Like, that's awful. Yeah, to think that, that, that. That's, a sad, that, that, that's a reality in today's COVID world. Yeah. That's a reality. 
Well, and for those of you who are founders of your organization and you are running your organization, the unfortunate thing that you're going to see too is, you know, not necessarily that you lose your fundraising job, but you lose your nonprofit. And that's, that's the part that I'm like, oh, like we, we got to go back to the drawing board. And I feel like I say that every single episode that I'm like, go back, you know, the, my seven step process, the first step is all about focusing your vision and, you know, the vision should not change. You know what you're saying here, if we're raising a hundred thousand dollars, the goal is still a hundred thousand dollars. So, but we're going to approach that completely different than what we would have done before, which may have been a fundraising event back then, you know, but, but here's the thing, you know, for those of us, you and I being in, you know, fundraising for quite some time is that it, when you put on a fundraising event, the goal is to get major gift donors to bubble to the surface, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's why, I mean, that's why I always did fundraisers. You know, it wasn't because the fundraiser, the event, the gala, the golf tournament, the whatever was a great, you know, moneymaker. It was who's going to show up and who's going to shine. Right. And so what you just said is so valuable. I just hope people are listening because you said, who are the people who have shined in the past? And maybe you didn't have the time to go build a relationship with them to ask for these bigger dollars, but they are sitting in your database, waiting for a deeper conversation to give these larger gifts. So absolutely. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, absolutely. And, and, you know, in, I did always, always share kind of a rule of thumb of special events. If you're not busier after your special event than before you're doing it wrong. And, and 99% of the people, if they have a gala, if they have a golf tournament, they are, are just running 100 miles an hour, and as soon as it's over, whew, I'm finished. And, and I share with them, your, your special event should be the gateway, say the front door to your, to your organization. This, uh, that's just the starter, starter to the relationship is that special event. You know, I'd stretch out my arms, and I'd say that's the y'all come type of, uh, type of approach. But, but what happens I often describe is that that special event is the cemetery. You, you've invited them to something. They came, they had a good time and Hey, we'll catch you next year. I hope we can count on you to buy, you know, buy a table next year, but they are never engaged. They are never solicited, but before that they are never even researched to determine, gee, are they capable of doing something more than buying a table once a year? That's where true fundraising happens. Yeah. is when you go the extra mile and you look at who is already in my ranks, who already believes in, in what we're doing, who's already committed to it, who can I take to the next level in fundraising? And what I find too, in a, in a lot of smaller, more faith-based organizations, and especially those that, that kind of cut their teeth on dinners and they'll pass a pledge card. And when, when the maximum ask on a pledge card might be $5,000, and they get a bunch of $5,000 pledges, that tells me right there they've not asked for enough money. Mm-hmm. People will give you what you ask for, and you know, so often people don't know how to even construct something, even like a pledge card, and you, you leave money on the table. If the most you ask for is $5,000 and somebody's capable of giving you a million, why should they give you a million? You said, you know, all you need is 5,000. So, so yes. <laughs> So much, so much strategy that, that goes into to this stuff. And, 
And a, a lot of it is, you know, just from years of experience, that it's kind of common sense if you've been in the business for, for a long time. And, and so I, I try and guide people and, and tell them, you know, avail yourself of someone who has experience so they can tell you these types of things so that you don't leave money on the table. Yeah. One of the, I, I just have to repeat one thing that you said just now, people will give you what you ask for. Yeah. People will give you what you ask for. They will not give you what you want. <laughs> they will give what you ask for. And so, yeah, if you don't ask for it, they don't know you need it. So yeah. I love that. Okay. One question that I have for you here is that I'm like, okay, how long does it typically take you to get somebody to make a major gift contribution? Do you have a general time frame that you work off of when you're thinking about that? It, it varies if it's somebody that's already in the ranks that's been a faithful supporter and they have the ability to give you you may be able to visit with them one time and get a major gift out of them it may take two times it may take three three times the average rule of thumb in major gift fundraising is seven seven steps to an ask so it depends on how long and how strategic it takes you to touch them effectively so to speak but but you you need to give yourself at least six months, and 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 let me demystify this for some of your people. When you when you go and ask someone for money, you're going to get one of three answers: yes, I'll give; no, I'm not going to give; or maybe I'll give. And after you ask, you need you know they'll tell you, make the ask, and then shut up. Let let people talk. And if the fundraiser talks after the ask is made, I don't care how long the silence is, and even if it's uncomfortable, what, what happens is you can talk somebody out of a gift. You need to give them the benefit of, of responding. And if they say yes, oh, that's great. If they say no, that's okay too, because that tells you that they're not interested in playing in the major gift sandbox, so you don't have to devote any more time to them. It may be, and after the, the maybe, maybe if the stock market goes up, maybe if I get a bonus, it may, you know, maybe I will give you a paid up life insurance policy instead, whatever that is. So, so two out of three answers are really good. So, so your chance, so, so your chances are, uh, are, are really good to start off with. So wow. don't, don't be afraid to ask because yeah. sometimes you will be just blown away by, by what you get. And, and whenever you have a really big win and a really big surprise, that will do more for your professional self-confidence than anything that has probably ever happened before. Mm. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> when some of those really large gifts that I secured, you know, back in the day, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It gives you that jolt. Like, oh my gosh, I could do this. Like I can, you can ask for that next level up. And so you do have to realize that your, it's, it's your insecurities, not theirs that play into the mix. So I like that. Yes, no, yeah. and maybe. And if they give you a no, yeah, you get an opportunity to just to move on to the next one. And, exactly. And, and, and move forward. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is the fundraising freedom podcast. So I want to hear from you. What does fundraising freedom mean to you? Being, being able to uh, fundraise for, for long-term gifts. Long-term gifts. 
Okay. I like it. Okay. And I want to hear some resources that you have available because you have so much knowledge in the major gift space, but obviously we're not going to be able to tap uh, all of this on today's conversation. And there's so many things that I'm, people ask like, Oh, how much should I ask for? And how do you know? And like, it's just like, I know that the, the list goes on and on, which is uh, ultimately why I decided to even do a podcast. Cause I was like, there's just too many things that go into fundraising, but you have put together some resources that are available right now that people can start to pre-order, but tell us a little bit of, of what those look like and what kind of resources you're putting out there. So when, when, when COVID hit for the first month, I nearly pulled my hair out trying to figure out what I was going to do and was just bored, bored to tears. I'm a people person. I need to see people, need to talk with people. And I started getting calls from organizations and people, small groups, a lot of ministry type that said, hey, we used to do special events. We can't do that now. We don't know what we're going to do. And they said, we, we'd like to hire you. And unfortunately, you know, they were unable to pay my fees and my heart was really gripped by that because I, I, you know, I, I, I want to help everybody. And, um, I just, I did not have the bandwidth in order to do that. I'd always prided myself on the clients that, that I deal with making fundraising turnkey for them. Any materials that I put together for them were completely personalized for them. And after, after a month of getting calls like that, I said, I, I've got to do something. And obviously I had some time. I wasn't traveling. I wasn't on the road. And we were, we were in lockdown in, in South Florida. So I, I, I sat at the computer and I just started to write. And I created the materials for a larger audience that, that couldn't pay at the full board rate. And I created materials that were in a, a non-personalized format but conveyed the content in a, a manner what I call working smarter, not harder. And the area of my expertise and the ones that I continually get calls on is major gifts. And for a lot of people, they just, they don't know how to do it. The process is, is, is just, it's very confusing. So I, I wrote these manuals to, to demystify that process and I put them in a step format to be able to guide people and so what I call the, the fundraising novice or the, the beginner can do it. These materials are good for what you call, what you may call a, a mid-level or even a senior, senior level fundraiser as well, because the information is practical. So I put those together and I, I titled it Getting Started Major Gifts 101. That, that has, has gone really well. And, and so what, what I have decided to do that near and dear to my heart is a, ver a version of that just for the faith-based community because there are some intrinsic differences between the faith-based nonprofit and, and a regular a regular nonprofit. So taking pre-orders for those and uh, a number of other resources that are available. I've got blog content on there that, that shares a lot of practical wisdom as it relates to fundraising as well. You know, I, I, I would love at the end of my life to know that my materials have helped people raise billions of dollars. That, that, that's how I'd like my obituary to read. <laughs> I love it. You and me both. <laughs> it's like yeah. just to be able to make that connection is huge. And so you also mentioned that you have a coupon code for us. If you guys are interested in that, you can go in the show notes and then your website, if they want to get more information about you in general, where should they go? 
southernphilanthropy.com. All right, southernphilanthropy.com. We'll have that in the show notes as well. All right, as we wrap up here, do you have any final parting advice for those who are in the fundraising space just trying to raise some funds during this season? Yeah. I'll I'll give everybody a fundraising fundraising tip. If you need to raise major gift support and you can't have your, 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 your big events, one of the best things that you can do is to have your donor base wealth screened and that is send that to a company that um, there are a number of companies that do this that can run your list with the addresses through a wealth screening process and it will it will send you back your list and they will be ranked and scored according to their giving ability it's based on on public records so there's there's nothing confidential in there and and begin to look at that list, sort it from giving ability from highest to lowest. And I would say, take the people that whatever your major gift is, if it's 10,000, if it's 100,000, or if it's even 1,000, the people that that list says can give you $1,000 or more, begin to focus on those people. Even though you can't have a great big dinner, there, there is nothing holding you back from having a dinner in someone's home where you invite two or three couples that, that have scored high on the wealth screening, have a series of those dinners. I guarantee you those, those small dinners will produce more results than your great big special events, and it will take a fraction of the time, and it will be a fraction of the cost. Really great advice. Please listen to that <laughs> because yeah, really honing in on those few people makes all the difference. So, well, thanks Ben. What, I mean, huge, valuable information where I'm definitely going to have to have you come back. <laughs> yeah. There is so much more that um, we could tap into. So, but um, thank you for being a part of the show and guys, once again, uh, check out Ben's stuff at southernphilanthropy.com and he's got a great page on there. Just FAQs, you know, questions that you might be asking your yourself and, and others. I think that that's all really incredible. And of course, his resources that are on his page as well. So, well, thanks, Ben. And for those of you guys working at this, just take this one step at a time. You don't have to have this figured out overnight, but it's really important that you start making changes towards the gifts so that you can actually do the work that you're called to do. So hope you guys have a great week. Let's go change the world one volunteer and $1 at a time. 